Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to, on behalf of Heritage and the Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, to this uh, further uh, uh, event in our series on uh, preserving the Constitution. Now, today we're going to deal with the subject of theories of Supreme Court uh, supremacy, uh, the definition and and uh, interpretation of the law, uh, the respective roles of the three separate branches, and so on. The fact that uh, we have this debate today really goes back to as early as 1787. The task that the founders had that time was to try to put together a central government to handle those functions that couldn't be handled by the states themselves or even the states combined. But there needed to be some form of central government which would have the authority and the energy to deal with such things as foreign governments, uh, foreign armies on the borders of the, United, of the new United States, to uh, protect ships, merchant ships at sea from both pirates and the navies of other countries, to engage in diplomatic subjects, dip diplomatic uh, intercourse with other nations, uh, to create things like post roads and a postal system within the United States itself, and to deal with interstate commerce. These were things that were had gone astray because there had been no way in which those different matters and other truly national subjects could be handled. But they had a problem. The dilemma was, how could you have a central government with sufficient energy, as they called it, to carry out those necessary functions, and at the same time not risk the danger and jeopardy of having a central government that would oppress the people. They had just gone through a very difficult war, very costly war in both blood and treasure, and uh, they didn't want to make the same mistake again uh, as they had, and would allow people to suffer as they had under the British rule. And so uh, these men who were really experts, uh, many of them had studied very hard uh, the civilizations of the past. Uh, they had studied uh, previous governments around the world over various periods uh, in history. And they came to the conclusion that the best way to control a government was to concentrate on the subject of power. And so what they did was they divided power both horizontally and also vertically. It was divided vertically by having only limited subjects, limited uh, topics, and limited authority given to the federal government, and the rest of all governmental power remaining with the states and with the people themselves, local governments. And then even to be sure that they had sufficiently diffused power, 
within the federal government, they then divided, of course, into the three separate and independent branches. And that word independent is the key to why there has been considerable conflict since the earliest days uh, as to uh, what the role of each of those branches were, how they operated with each other, uh, and as a result of that, uh, we come to the topic that we have today. The idea of having separate and independent powers, uh, one in the legislative power, of course, with Congress, uh, the executive power, the responsibility of carrying out the laws and protecting the security of the people uh, with the executive branch and particularly the president, and then the ultimately the Supreme Court to interpret the laws. And the question really at the originally uh, was kind of uh, assumed that the the federal uh, that the Supreme Court would be the weakest of the three branches. I think it was Hamilton, and uh, I believe it was the Federalist seventy eight that, that said that uh, the court would be the weakest and would not something to be feared. Now uh, Hamilton was probably a, a great officer during the Revolutionary War. He was probably a great Secretary of the Treasury, but he was a lousy prophet. And so, uh, so today, uh, actually, that the role of the Supreme Court is one that has always been in contention. And you know, in order to make this whole system work, uh, and also again to protect against oppression, the founders also developed some other uh, uh, precautions, you might say, uh, the separation of powers being one, but also such things as the uh, fact that uh, laws had to be uh, could be vetoed by the president, and that. that the laws really required the two uh, groups, the Congress on the one hand, the bicameral legislature itself was a, was a further check on, on power, particularly as the Constitution originally uh, uh, read when the uh, senators were elected by the legislatures of the regular states. And that was, of course, to protect the power of the states in this federal organization. And so uh, various other things such as that. And so... Uh, the, from the various early days, there was a great deal of what you might say conflict between the branches, uh, which was worked out in various ways. And this was not at all a surprise to those who had originally written the Constitution, because as uh, the Federalist Papers said, uh, the whole idea was that ambition would counter ambition, and so that each of the three branches would make sure that the other branches the other two branch, one would, uh, would be sure that the other two would not get too powerful. And so uh, that's why uh, we don't have something that was, you might say, mechanically efficient. Rather, we had something that was designed to have a certain amount of conflict in order to protect the liberty of the people. Well, from the very start, uh, there was a great deal of concern by presidents about the role of the Supreme Court. And the first one to raise this in, to great extent was Thomas Jefferson. And so uh, he, uh, he wrote, for example, in 1819 in a letter, he said, the and he was talking about those who thought, said that the Constitution should be interpreted primarily by the Supreme Court or only by the Supreme Court. He said, the Constitution, if that were true, is a mere thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary, where, which they may twist and shape into any form they please. He went in to say, my construction of the Constitution is very different from that. It is that each department is truly independent of the others and has an equal right to decide for itself what is the meaning of the Constitution. Then he went on to say, 
uh, this is somewhat sort of a low blow. He said, the judiciary of the United States is the subtle core of sappers and miners constantly working underground to undermine the foundations of our confederated fabric. Well, that's pretty strong language for a president of the United States. Later on, a few years later, a couple of decades later, uh, Andrew Jackson uh, entered the, the scene and he was a strong executive branch advocate, being the president. And uh, when Congress, when the Supreme Court made a decision that he didn't like, he uttered those famous words that have been repeated many times attributed to him, John Marshall, the Chief Justice, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it, indicating that uh, his, it was up to the court since they'd made a wrong decision from his standpoint. They had the responsibility to try to, to enforce it. Well, Abraham Lincoln was one uh, president who had a great deal of concern about the role of the Supreme Court. Uh, he, uh, particularly uh, when the court ruled as it did with under Justice Taney uh, and uh, in the Dred Scott decision and other decisions they made in some other cases. And he said, the, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole, the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the instant they are, that they are made in ordinary litigation between parties in personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal, the Supreme Court. Well, that's some of the uh, rhetoric, you might say, that went on uh, by various presidents concerning the Supreme Court. More recently, the Supreme Court itself has struck back to enlarge its power. From t the first days of our republic until more recently, uh, the idea of the, the uh, conduct of war was left to the, to the President of the United States and the executive branch. After all, the Constitution says that the President is the Commander-in-Chief. And so basically, the rules of war, the rules of war, actually the rules of governing the troops, the rules of conduct were left to Congress. Uh, but the president basically, from an operational standpoint, had the authority to go forward and to handle things pretty much as the executive branch thought appropriate. But more recently, particularly uh, since the uh, 11th of, uh, of uh, September of uh, 2001, and the fighting and the uh, military operations in Iraq and in Afghanistan, a series of Supreme Court decisions have thrust the Supreme Court into the conduct of war and particularly the handling of the, uh, uh, the uh, unlawful combatants who had been captured uh, on the battlefield in both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. The Supreme Court has gotten into that to an extent and uh, handling matters never before believed to be in, the, be in the province of the federal judiciary. So that has made then the question that we're just talking about today uh, even more relevant to the present time and raises to an even higher level of questioning what is the role of the Supreme Court, what is the relationship of the Supreme Court, and uh, what is the responsibility of the President and the Congress to obey the orders and the decisions of the Supreme Court. And so that leads us to uh, today's uh, debate uh, where the topic is resolved, Congress and the President are required to obey the Supreme Court's 
interpretations of the Constitution. Uh, to uh, moderate today, we are fortunate to have Tom Jipping, Deputy Director of the Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a senior legal fellow. And he is part of the Institute for Constitutional Government uh, here at Heritage, of course. He's joined us uh, in May of this uh, last year. He was on the staff of Orrin uh, Hatch, who received the Story Award uh, just last week. Uh, he was on that staff for 15 years. He was uh, spent several of those years as chief counsel in, in Senate Judiciary Committee. He's been, uh, before that, he spent uh, over a decade in various public policy organizations in the conservative movement. He has a national reputation among both liberals and conservatives as an expert on the federal judiciary, which will sta stand him in good stead in this particular event today. He's written a number of articles on law and public policy in several of journals, op-ed pieces, articles in both print and onli online publications. And he will be uh, taking on the responsibilities of refereeing, oh, excuse me, of moderating uh, this, this uh, today's civil debate on the subject, as I mentioned before, the responsibility of Congress and President vis-a-vis -vis the interpretations of the Supreme Court. So please join me to now uh, ring the bell for the first round, Tom Jipping. Thank you, General Meese. Today's debate is the final event in the Preserve the Constitution series that we do every fall here at the Heritage Foundation. It was originally scheduled for September 27th, uh, but a certain well-publicized hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee sort of intervened. Um, when we control the universe, it won't be like this. We'll be able to do things just the way we want. Uh, the, de the debate today is uh, billed as an Oxford-style debate which means that our debaters will be uh, supporting or opposing a particular proposition, which General Meese uh, just identified. Uh, our debaters will have up to 15 minutes for an opening statement, up to five minutes for rebuttal, and up to three minutes uh, for a closing statement. Uh, we have one of our Meese Center interns in the front row here who will indicate uh, when there's one minute left and then when it's time uh, to stop. So let me ask everyone to please silence your devices that you may have with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so we can give uh, full attention to our debaters. Up first, arguing in the affirmative is Dr. Roger Pallon, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute, where he's also the founding director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. Uh, he served in several senior posts in the Reagan administration and has published extensive commentary and scholarship. He holds a BA from Columbia, an MA and PhD from the University of Chicago, and a JD from George Washington University. Uh, as you may know, uh, Matthew Frank was to be arguing against the proposition. He had a, an illness in his family and, and couldn't be here, but we're grateful Stepping in, uh, in his shoes will be Edward Whalen, who's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, uh, where he directs the program on the Constitution, the courts, and the culture. Uh, he has served in all three branches of the federal government as a law clerk for uh, Judge J. Clifford Wallace and Justice Antonin Scalia, as general counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's also a Senator Hatch alumnus and as Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel. He also has published 
extensive commentary and scholarship, holds a BA and JD from Harvard, where he was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. So Roger and Ed, thank you very much for participating. And Roger, the first 15 minutes is yours. Well, thank you, Tom. And uh, thanks to the Heritage Foundation as well for um, sponsoring this debate on judicial supremacy and more broadly on the judiciary's place in our governmental system, uh, as the debate invitation states. I also want to thank my old nemesis, uh, Ed Whalen, for stepping up on short notice uh, when Matt Frank had to bow out. Uh, Ed and I have debated um, these issues more than once over the years, and he hasn't budged a bit. Um, <laughs> when um, Jessica Klein first approached me about this debate, she said that based on what she read, uh, she wasn't sure whether I uh, took the affirmative side of this question. And she was right to wonder that because, as I told her, I'm not an absolute on the question, absolutist on the question of judicial supremacy. In fact, the more I've uh, thought about it since uh, then, uh, the more I've come to appreciate how complicated and unresolved uh, are many of the questions it raises. So let me start by saying that only a fanatic uh, would uh, take the absolutist view on judicial supremacy that's found in our proposition, and I'm not a fanatic. Uh, there are rare times when presidents and Congress must ignore courts. We've seen a few such times in our history, from Jefferson to Jackson to Lincoln and more, each of which seem to me to have been legitimate. I'm assuming, therefore, that Ed isn't going to pull the old debater's ploy by saying that, given the proposition before us, all he has to show that there's at least one case in which the court can be ignored, uh, which I've just conceded, so the debate's already over. Uh, <laughs> We know uh, that the law is replete with nuances, but beneath the nuances, there are serious differences between us, which I'll get to shortly. Uh, so just to be clear, I'll be arguing that judicial supremacy, too simply stated as the idea that political actors are bound by the Supreme Court's rulings, is not an absolute principle in our system, but rather is a very strong presumption more akin to a social norm. Because if the president or Congress or any state were free regularly to read and act on its own interpretation of the Constitution, we'd have legal chaos. It would be the end of the rule of law. So let's look a bit more closely at this idea of judicial supremacy. Most agree that it arose more starkly uh, from the Supreme Court's 1958 decision in Cooper v. Aaron, where the court ordered desegregation of Arkansas schools pursuant to 1954's Born, Board v. Brown, of education, Brown v. Board of Education. But after deciding the case, the court went on in dicta to assert two principles, judicial supremacy and judicial universality. Under the first, the court can declare and manifest uh, the supreme law of the land. Under the second, its decision is binding not only on the parties in the case, but on all parties in similar cases, as well as oath-bound public officials. And further, the court purported to draw those principles from Justice Marshall's opinion in Marbury v. Madison. But in doing so, the court read the Constitution's supremacy clause, which makes the Constitution the supreme law of the land, coupled with Marshall's famous declaration that it is emphatically the province of the, and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is, as holding that the court's decisions are the supreme law of the land. And that can't be right, not least because the court sometimes gets it wrong. 
Moreover, there's nothing in the Constitution to support that leap. On the contrary, what is in the Constitution, the Supremacy Clause, makes the Constitution the supreme law of the land, not the Supreme Court's perhaps mistaken reading of the Constitution. In short, there's all the difference in the world between the Constitution and the Court's reading of the Constitution. As I'm fond of saying, there's all the difference in the world between modern constitutional law and the Constitution itself. Similarly, the doctrine of a judicial universality has its own set of problems. Certainly the parties to a case are bound by the court's decision, but what about other parties similarly situated or public officials bound by oath to see that the laws be faithfully executed? As a strict legal matter, of course, such others are not bound until separately ordered in subsequent litigation in a conceivably cascading string of such decisions all of which would undermine the idea of precedent to say nothing of binding precedent. Yet all of this brings us to the need to make sense of these principles because today they are broadly accepted. Perhaps it's best, as Josh Blackman argues, to treat them not as legal doctrines but as cultural norms. In a comprehensive article on Cooper v. Aaron that's forthcoming in the Georgetown Law Journal, Blackman goes on to cite our own Attorney General Meese who wrote in 1987, and here I'm quoting Blackman with uh, quotes from Mr. Meese interlarded in, that although Meese rejected Cooper's dictum, in his judgment, officials in Arkansas and other states with segregated school systems should have changed their systems to conform with Brown, not based on a constitutional myth, but on a social norm that was supported by arguments from prudence, the need for stability in the law, and respect for the judiciary. On these bases, Blackman continues, government agents should abide by the decision of the court, Meese concluded, for it would have been highly irresponsible not to conform their behavior to precedent, end of quote. Before moving on, let me add just one point. It's one thing to live with judicial supremacy as a social norm, but what if the underlying decision is legally problematic or not widely accepted? Will others still be bound by it? In President Lincoln's hands, Dred Scott stood alone with no progeny or further mischief. More recently, by contrast, we have the court's 2015 decision in Obergefell v. Hodges, the same-sex marriage decision. Writing in its immediate aftermath, Matthew Frank seemed to hope that Obergefell would go the way of, of, of Dred Scott. But after some initial resistance in Alabama and a few other places, and the still unresolved difficulties with the masterpiece cake shop kinds of cases, the issue seems to be settled. And the assault on traditional marriage feared in some quarters hasn't materialized and isn't likely to. But what about Roe v. Wade? In the matter of public acceptance, does that decision stand between Dred Scott and Obergefell? We'll see. Stepping back a bit, let me try to sharpen the differences between Ed and me in the following way. Cooper v. Aaron arose in the early years of the Warren Court when conservatives were developing their arguments in opposition to what they saw as that and the later Burger Court's excesses which would reach their apotheosis 15 years later with Roe v. Wade. Thus, we find Yale's Alexander Bickel at work at that time on his 1962 book, The Least Dangerous Branch. Seeing what he and other conservatives thought to be judicial activism, Bickel fastened on two main themes. 
the very practical judicial review raised a, the very practice of judicial review uh, raised a counter-majoritarian difficulty, he said, courts overruling the will of the majority. And that counseled, in turn, the passive virtues, judicial deference to the political branches. Underlying Bickel's thesis, of course, was a theory of political legitimacy, firmly rooted in small-d democracy. That theory would reach a much broader audience nearly three decades later in the hands of Robert Bork, an antitrust and law and economics colleague of Bickel's who took much of his constitutional instruction from Bickel. In his magnificent tome, The Tempting of America, Bork summarized Bickel's theory of legitimacy by stating what he called the Madisonian Dilemma, which runs as follows, and I quote, America was founded on two opposing principles, which must continually be reconciled. The first principle is self-government, which means that in wide areas of life, majorities are entitled to rule, if they wish, simply because they're majorities. The second principle is that there are nonetheless some things majorities must not do to minorities, some areas of life in which the individual must be free of majority rule, end of quote. Well, that gets Madison exactly backward. America's first political principle may indeed have been self-government, but its first moral principle, and the reason we instituted government at all, was individual liberty, which the Declaration of Independence makes plain, the Constitution's preamble articulates, and the Fourth Amendment incorporated at least against the states, at last against the states. That means that in wide areas, individuals are entitled to be free simply because we're born free with natural rights and thus are so entitled, while in some areas, majorities are entitled to rule not because they're inherently so entitled, but because we've authorized them to. That gets the order right. Individual liberty first, self-government second, as a means toward securing that liberty. What Bickel gave short shrift then was the majoritarian difficulty, the potential for majoritarian tyranny which animated the founders, the framers, and the Civil War amendments framers, as Ed said in his opening remarks. They wrote and amended a constitution to guard against that difficulty. But that edifice was lost when progressives grabbed effectively unrestrained political power during the New Deal following President Roosevelt's infamous threat to pack the Supreme Court with six new members. Precisely there, not earlier during the so-called Lochner area, was the systematic start of judicial activism, with the court eviscerating the numerated powers doctrine in 1937, bifurcating the Bill of Rights and inventing scrutiny theory a year later, and finally jettisoning the non-delegation doctrine in 1943. The New Deal court was deferential to the political branches, to be sure, deferential to the point of abdication its judicial duty, but active in turning the Constitution on its head. But the court got its second wind in the 1950s, and not a moment too soon in the case of civil rights. In some cases, however, it went too far in the other direction, deferring too little to the political branches in the states, especially when it found rights that could not be found even among our unenumerated rights. Cooper v. Aaron's judicial supremacy claim, whatever its value as a cultural norm, is perhaps the clearest manifestation of this judicial hubris. But taken as a whole, 
This activism is what generated a conservative reaction and a call for judicial restraint, which all too often reduced to Bickle's passive virtues and judicial abdication. And that led, ironically, to the growth of government that conservatives were otherwise opposing. On one hand, conservatives and libertarian economists and politicians were railing against this massive, massive government. But on the other hand, conservative jurisprudence were stripping the courts of the constitutional means the framers had provided for checking that unconstitutional growth. And that conservative jurisprudential posture has continued to the present but not without opposition from within, from a number of us in the classical liberal or libertarian cadre who from the mid-1970s have urged conservatives to rethink their position on the role of the courts. We've argued assiduously that conservatives took the wrong turn in the late 50s, focusing on judicial behavior rather than the Constitution itself or misreading the Constitution as a small d democratic document They've missed the forest for the trees. We've got to get back to the theory of the Constitution, to its theory of legitimacy, which is grounded not in democracy, but in liberty and is manifest in the document's text, properly read. So that, at a general level, is what separates me from my fellow classical liberals and my fellow classical liberals from Ed and from many other conservatives, although not from many other conservatives for the tide has been changing for some time now. I'll illustrate these developments with a few cases in my rebuttal or closing statement, but that's enough for now. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you, General Meese, for that enlightening introduction. Thank you, Roger. I've always thought of you as my friend and sometimes a sparring partner, not, not a nemesis. But uh, uh, I'll begin by uh, noting that Roger has, I think, conceded the debate. Um, <laughs> and indeed has tried to shift it to a very different topic. I'm, I'm nonetheless going to uh, address the, the, the basic question uh, that was presented here, that is, the proposition that I'm contesting, Congress and the President are required to obey the Supreme Court's interpretations of the Constitution. Required to obey. Now, again, this is not a position that Roger uh, is embracing. He's saying, no, it's a cultural norm. And I think we may have a lot of agreement there that we can explore later. But there are, there are a lot of people uh, uh, in this legal culture um, who uh, profess, uh, I think uncritically, uh, the position that the Supreme Court expressed in Cooper versus Aaron. Many of them teach on law school faculties. And the, uh, the myth of judicial supremacy pervades our, our legal culture. So this required to obey suggests that there's a legal obligation that isn't merely a question of respectful consideration of what the Supreme Court has had to say, or deference is a usual rule, or even a rule of prudence. It treats the Supreme Court as though it is our government's supreme leader, treats the adjective supreme uh, as though it doesn't merely modify court, not merely the, the, the supreme entity in the federal judiciary, but is somehow supreme over all of government. Likewise, again, the, the proposition we are uh, debating refers um, uh, not to uh, judgments or, or rulings of the court, that is the, the respect that they are owed, but interpretations of the Constitution. 
uh, as, as once the court has said um, that a, the Commerce Clause, for example, should be interpreted as is in Wicker v. Filburn, that, that everyone else, Congress, President, ha have to embrace that. I'm not surprised that, 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 that Roger does not accept this position, but again, there are lots of folks out there who do, and for that reason, I'd like to run through why I think uh, it is basically uh, clearly wrong. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, I think, would be surprised uh, that this question is um, still up for debate. It was 160 autumns ago that he and Stephen Douglas uh, had their famous debates in the campaign for the, the Senate seat from Illinois. And one big part of that uh, debate was exactly what, uh, how the Dred Scott ruling should be treated, how it should be regarded. Recall that in Dred Scott, the court had two basic rulings. First, it ruled that free blacks could never be citizens of this country, and therefore Dred Scott uh, hadn't satisfied the jurisdictional requirement for his lawsuit in federal court because there was not diversity of citizenship. It, uh, it ruled further that Congress had no authority to bar slavery in the federal territories. That was a, a ruling in early 1857. And Douglas came right out and, and basically said, this exact quote here, whoever resists the final decision of the highest judicial tribunal aims a deadly blow to our whole Republican system of government. By resists, he meant questions, criticizes, disagrees with. Whoever does that. Now, Lincoln, in his first inaugural, in the, in the passage that General Meese read, uh, set forth a proposition that I think is, is quite correct. I'm going to read it again to emphasize it. The candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the instant they are made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. He went on uh, to contest Douglas again, nor is, there in it, nor is there in this view any assault upon the court or the judges. So this is not an attack on the courts. This is upholding basic constitutional principles, departmentalism, uh, the, the independent authority of the president, the independent obligation of the president and the members of Congress in fulfilling their oaths to uphold the Constitution to determine what the Constitution means. I only have questions we can get into about just how one goes about doing that responsibly, but uh, for, for present purposes, I'll confine myself to the proposition that Lincoln correctly understood that he had an independent obligation to do so. Consistent with his uh, understanding, Lincoln proceeded to defy the interpretations uh, of federal law that the Supreme Court had offered uh, in its Dred Scott ruling. He, for example, issued passports and patents to free blacks. The Buchanan administration had said, no, we're going to abide by what the Supreme Court said. Blacks can't, free blacks can't be citizens. Therefore, no passports, no, no patents for free blacks. Again, Lincoln's administration reversed that. He also signed into law bars on slavery in the federal territories. Again, direct defiance of, of, of the holding of Dred Scott. He did that uh, in the District of Columbia Emancipation Act, April 16, 1862 that ended slavery in, uh, in this district. And he did that uh, uh, two months later in an act that barred slavery in all federal territories then existing and to be acquired.
Now, I'd like to explore the distinction between judicial review and judicial supremacy, because I think it's a basic confusion between these two concepts that fuels a lot of the all-too-ready acceptance of the myth of judicial supremacy. Judicial review is the rather odd term that we lawyers, lawyers use to refer to the power of courts to review the constitutionality of statutes that, that, that they're asked to apply and to decline to apply statutes that they deem to be unconstitutional. Judicial review rests on the supremacy of the Constitution over ordinary statutes, on the doctrine of constitutional supremacy. You can see this in Hamilton's Federalist 78, where Hamilton explains that the Constitution is, in fact, and must be regarded by the judges as a fundamental law. Note this, must be regarded by the judges. The Constitution constrains what judges can do. It therefore belongs to them, to judges, to ascertain its meaning, as well as the meaning of any particular act proceeding from the legislative body. And if there should happen to be an irreconcilable variance between the two, that which has a superior obligation and validity ought, of course, to be preferred. That is, the Constitution is supreme over ordinary law. He goes on to explain uh, that uh, this does not uh, reflect a, uh, the, the concept of judicial supremacy, nor does this conclusion by any means, he says, suppose the superiority of the judicial to the legislative power. It only supposes that the power of the people is superior to both and that where the will of the legislature declared in its statutes stands in opposition to that of the people declared in the Constitution, the judges ought to be governed by the latter rather than the former. Again, the judges ought to be governed. Judicial supremacy holds that the Constitution means whatever five justices say that it means and that all other governmental actors are, are obligated to accept that. There is a deep, irreconcilable incompatibility between the concept of constitutional supremacy from which judicial review flows and the concept of judicial supremacy. So where did this myth of judicial supremacy arise from? As Roger has indicated, uh, Cooper versus Aaron is the very first time the court articulated this myth. And it, in doing so, it spelled out a, a pseudo-history that you think would get someone a flunking grade in a, in a high school history course. Here's what I had to say. In 1803, Chief Justice Marshall, speaking for a unanimous court, uh, referring to the Constitution as a fundamental and paramount law of the nation, all good so far, declared in Marbury, Marbury v. Madison that it is emphatically the province and duty of the Judicial Department to say what the law is. Okay, that's all correct so far. Of course, it strips out the, the very context in which he made this statement, which is simply to say, because the, the courts must determine what the law is, they, they have to give supremacy to the Constitution over ordinary, ordinary laws. This, declision, this decision, he goes on, declared the basic principle that the federal judici judiciary is supreme in the exposition of the law of the Constitution. There's not one word in Marbury versus Madison that supports that claim. And he goes on, that principle has ever since, ever since 1803, been respected by this country, by this court and the country as a permanent and indispensable feature of our constitutional system. Never mind Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln. Never mind you know, Lincoln standing up to Dred Scott. That somehow this has always been uh, respected as a, as a permanent and indispensable feature. Uh, this, this same 
uh, myth is reinforced by common locutions, mislocutions, that I think all of us can, can fall subject to. It's routine to refer to Supreme Court decisions as the law of the land. The Supreme Court has spoken. It's the law of the land. Well, the Constitution says that the Constitution and laws pursuant to it and treaties made under the authority of the United States are the supreme law of the land. It does not say that the Supreme Court's interpretations of the Constitution are. And the idea that the Supreme Court's mistaken interpretations of the Constitution, it's saying the Constitution means X when the Constitution means Y, that that, that, that should be uh, the law of the land is, is, I think, an absurdity. We also tend to say things like, oh, the court struck down that law uh, as though uh, the, 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 once the court rules, the law disappears from, from the statute books. As law professor Jonathan Mitchell has put it, there is no writ of erasure. There, there, there is no power of the courts to go in and erase the, these laws from the books. And, and indeed, you'll see that so many of these laws that have, that have been ruled unenforceable by the Supreme Court remain on the books and are very open to springing back uh, into enforceability uh, if and when the Supreme Court uh, were to reverse its position. We see this um, in the famous legal tender cases from the 1870s. In, uh, in 1870 itself, in Hepburn versus Griswold, the court ruled that the Legal Tender Act of 1862 that allowed you know, to pay debts with uh, U.S. notes could not constitutionally be applied to contracts made before its enactment. Just one year later, the court, the court reversed course and held that the act could be applied to contracts made before its enactment. Well, how could it have reversed course if the law that it was ruling on had been erased from the statute books in the meantime? It wasn't, obviously. Uh, now, again, uh, I'm glad to hear, and I'm not surprised, um, I'm glad to hear that Roger does not embrace what he calls the, 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 the absolutist um, version of the, of the proposition here. And imagine uh, if, imagine anyone who did. Uh, imagine, uh, what this would mean, for example, that if, uh, even if you thought that, say, the court's Commerce Clause decisions in Wicker v. Filburn or Gonzalez v. Rates were wrongly decided, Somehow, uh, it would be incumbent upon members of Congress never to um, urge that a bill be defeated um, because it's beyond um, a proper view of Congress's Commerce Clause power. That is a view that doesn't comport with Wickard v. Filburn. Uh, likewise, with respect to, to uh, and indeed, I suppose it'd be illegitimate for for a, a, a member to do, to even vote with 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 such a view in his mind. Uh, likewise, on uh, you know kilo t takings case, you can go on and on. Uh, again, I think this um, this this proposition of judicial supremacy is not one that can be maintained uh, uh, seriously um, by by any person. And indeed, we see it invoked selectively to uh, protect rulings that, uh, that, that people favor. Would, look, I'd love to have a rule of, of judicial supremacy that said, said the court is supreme on those rulings I like and not on those that I don't. And, I, and, and everyone tends um, to, to uh, in practice, adopt a position like that. You have to take the bitter with the sweet. Uh, and uh, so you know, there'll be plenty of decisions that we all or most of us like that we have to recognize that um, you know, might well be uh, vulnerable to, to good faith challenge. The, the, the complexity here really comes in um, 
when we try to, to explore just what this um, strong presumption or social norm that um, Roger um, raised really means, how strong should it be, how does one go about contesting it, and I think the very existence of this myth of judicial supremacy makes it difficult for us to really, um, for our culture at least, to really explore that question uh, in a serious matter. So uh, if, if we can dispel this, then we can, I think, uh, think in a more um, constructive way about just when and where and how the president, members of Congress, state a actors in the states, uh, for that matter, can go about uh, contesting Supreme Court interpretations uh, and work to get uh, Supreme Court decision-making uh, closer in accordance with our actual Constitution. Thank you. All right, I've got five minutes to rebut, but unfortunately there's not much to rebut because I agree with essentially everything that... Um, Ed said. So let me play devil's advocate for just a moment. Um, the whole issue of judicial supremacy arises uh, because the court sometimes gets it wrong, um, and therefore the claim that the court's decision is the supreme law of the land raises the question, well, was the court's decision in Plessy the supreme law of the land, or was its decision in Brown the supreme law of the land? But let's suppose that there was a question, there was a decision about which there could be no question. Would we then be able to say that the court's decision was the supreme law of the land? Suppose, um, quite uh, beyond imagination, that a case came before the court about whether the president uh, was 35 years old or not, and the facts were clear on the matter, and the question would be, what is the law on the matter? Well, there's not room, much room for wiggling uh, on that kind of question. So, would the decision that the Constitution says that the president must be at least 35 years old be construed properly as the decision, as a decision that becomes the supreme law of the land? I leave it to... Uh, Ed to wrestle with that hypo. Anyway, I notice he didn't go after the kinds of things that I threw out, which I threw out simply to goad him into <laughs> responding to them. So let me follow up on my promise to give you a decision that brings to the fore the question not so much of judicial supremacy, but judicial review, which I moved over to because judicial supremacy couldn't be thought of as the extreme form of judicial review. Um, <clears throat> and I'll, I'll, I'll choose the case of Troxel v. Granville, uh, the 2000 decision, which was a challenge to a Washington state statute that authorized grandparents and others to go into state court to get an order to allow them to visit the children of parents who may not have wanted those people to visit their children. The, uh, the, Grandparent Visitation Statute, as it was called. Now, this is a statute that put conservatives to something of a dilemma, because on one hand, they are family values folks, and in particular, valuing the, uh, per, per, the right of fit parents to control access to their children. But on the other hand, they tend to be deference to the 
legislative branch and in particular at the state level. And so they were torn both ways in this. We libertarians were not torn in the least. Um, we uh, stood for the idea that this was absolutely an unconstitutional uh, measure under the uh, properly under the Privileges and Immunities Clause, but uh, actually uh, under the uh, Due Process of Law Clause. And that's exactly the way the Washington State Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court came down. But Justice Scalia dissented. And in his dissent, he said, the right of fit parents to control access to their children is one of the inalienable rights the Declaration of Independence speaks of and one of the uh, unenumerated rights the Ninth Amendment refers to. But that amendment does not authorize him, he said, to say what those rights are, much less to enforce them. Well, the problem he's got there is that he's already said that this is a constitutional amendment insofar as it is recognized under the 14th, under the Fourteenth um, uh, Amendment through the, uh, uh, through the Ninth Amendment. And so the, the, the uh, question is, as with all such constitutional rights, it falls to the court to protect them from the kind of majoritarian tyranny that fit parents were put to by this statute. And so he left it to the, he would leave it to the state. Well, the state has spoken. And it said, there isn't this constitutional right, which he himself said there is. So he's in something of a dilemma there. And I'm just curious how Ed would handle a case like this. My time is up, so I'll leave my real zingers to uh, the uh, conclusion. And it's all yours, Ed. Have at it. Thanks. I'll just sit here um, at this point. Um, look, again, um, I appreciate the fact that we have consensus on the major question. Relative consensus. Um, and so Roger's trying to bait me on some other matters. Uh, let me first address this. This isn't debate. <laughs> well, bait does not mean, debate does not mean bait. But um, um, so Roger's question is, is a clearly right Supreme Court decision the supreme law of the land? No, a clearly right Supreme Court decision is a clearly right Supreme Court decision. And it is therefore, you know, compelling evidence, one would say, of, 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 of what the Constitution means. But um, I don't think the, that that changes the fact that the, when the Constitution says that it and federal laws pursuant to it are the supreme law of the land, it doesn't say that Supreme Court rulings are, and there's no reason to, to, to treat them as such. Uh, you know, the Ninth Amendment, I know, is uh, a, a perennial source of dispute uh, between uh, Roger and me, um, so I will let myself get baited here. Uh, like Roger, I believe that the uh, text of the Ninth Amendment should be strictly followed. Um, unlike Roger, I don't think that the text of the Ninth Amendment remotely says what he imagines it to, to say. The uh, Ninth Amendment reads, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. By its express text, it merely sets forth a rule of construction governing other constitutional provisions. Its text, I would submit, cannot plausibly be read as a font of any rights. Um, that obviously is a, is a divide between uh, among originalists, especially I think between libertarians and those of us who um, are more in the, the uh, judicial restraint camp. 
uh, I readily plead guilty to not reading uh, into the Constitution um, my preferences on, you know, grandparent visitation or, or, or anything else. All right, so I guess we will draw this to a conclusion with a couple of quick summaries, and I will pick up on this Ninth Amendment business by suggesting that that uh, Ed is half right, that it is a rule of construction, but it is not a mere rule of construction, for it says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed, what? To deny or disparage others retained by the people. Notice, you can't retain what you don't first have to be retained. Now, People like Robert Bork had said, well, we really don't know what the Ninth Amendment means. Uh, it's like looking at something, uh, trying to find something under an ink blot. Well, we do know because the framers, as it happened, addressed that issue in the last days of the, uh, of the convention. And it was addressed further in the, um, in the, uh, con the Constitution or the ratifying conventions. Um, the objection, it, it was addressed in the form of objections to adding a Bill of Rights. Wilson, Hamilton, and others objected be, for two reasons. One, a Bill of Rights would be unnecessary, and second, it would be dangerous. Unnecessary because why declare, for example, that there's a right to freedom of speech when no power is given with respect to limiting the freedom of speech. In other words, they took the doctrine of enumerated powers, the idea that Congress has only 18 powers, very seriously, the logic being that where there is no power, there is a right. Moreover, and here we come to the point, the failure to enumerate all members of the category by ordinary principles of legal construction, unio, exclusio unius est, exclusio, whatever, uh, it will be construed as meaning that those that are not enumerated shall not be protected. And it was to guard against that that they wrote the Ninth Amendment, which makes it clear that just because you don't find a right among our enumerated rights doesn't mean that we don't have those rights. And if those indeed are constitutional rights, as Justice Scalia said, then it falls to the court to determine what they are. But it does not follow that the court has to go about that by actually enumerating unenumerated rights. Rather, all it has to do is ask whether the power that is before the court is legitimate. And I'll give you one simple example and conclude with that. And that is... Um, Griswold v. Connecticut, which was the uh, uh, the which which um, uh, was a challenge to the Connecticut statute prohibited the sale and use of contraceptives. There, it was enacted under the police power, the principal purpose of which is to secure our rights. Whose rights were secured by this statute? Whose rights are violated by my selling you contraceptives or you? using them. The government, as in Lawrence, could come up with no reason other than the morality of one part of the population against the morality of another part of the population. In other words, it was pure, pure 
uh, majoritarian tyranny in the domain of morality. And that's why it fell, and rightly so. I'll, I'll be very brief. Um, first, uh, Roger earlier took Judge Bork to task for getting um, Madison backwards. As I understood it, he objects that Bork said that here are two principles, one and two, and it should have been here are two principles, two and one. I really don't think um, that, that, that it affects the, the, the analysis to say that these two principles and present a sort of tension that, that needs to, to be resolved. Um, on the question of the Ninth Amendment, there's a sort of sleight of hand or sleight of word going on here. The essential point is that the rights that are protected by the Ninth Amendment, the correlative of the limits on governmental power, are not rights of constitutional stature. Scalia did not say um, otherwise in his dissent uh, in, in Troxel. As Michael McConnell has argued, and he did this years ago at Cato, and I don't think anyone has yet uh, he went into the belly of the beast to make this point. I don't think anyone has, has yet responded to him. So, oh, yeah. oh I've, okay, I'll be eager to say that. He says, the Ninth Amendment merely provides a clear, statement, a clear statement rule for abrogating unenumerated natural rights. Unenumerated natural rights, not of constitutional stature, obviously. But let's get back to what this debate is all about. And I just want to remind you that um, I think I've had a concession at the beginning that uh, <laughs> the myth of judicial supremacy is unsound. And I encourage you to be attentive um, as you hear people talk about um, legal issues. You'll see this pop up in all sorts of ways. And, and we're not ever going to um, uh, get our legal culture corrected. We're not going to be able to think seriously about when and where um, the president and Congress can challenge Supreme Court interpretations unless we first dispel this unsound myth. Thank you. Please join me in thanking both of our debaters. In the, uh, in the minutes that we have left, uh, we'll, we were able to take a few questions uh, from the audience. Please identify yourself and indicate whether your question is directed at one of the debaters or both. Also, please, if possible, have the first question or the first sentence after you identify yourself end with a question mark. First sentence after you identify yourself. We'll start right here. Devin Watkins. Uh, Devin Watkins. Um, to bring it back to the question that was asked in this, uh, say that the, the court, uh, someone sues the government over something and the court says that statute is unconstitutional, I'm going to ignore it. And the executive branch says I'm going to ignore that uh, opinion to all the other parties and forces each and every person to go sue the government and get a declaration and injunction against them. This seems at least to kind of undermine that um, maybe it's cultural norm, but is there is it's it seems like there's quite a bit of a problem if the executive is actually doing that, especially if it's doing it on a regular basis. Is that a question to me? To both of you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the point I made in my formal remarks. Namely, you would see a cascading series of uh, suits, uh, each one. Uh, you, you, not only would, would you have to sue Arkansas, then you'd have to sue uh, Oklahoma, then you'd have to sue Mississippi and so forth, each one saying I will not uh, desegregate until I am ordered expressly to do so because there is no precedent there. Look, obviously the significance of this um, concern depends on the particular matter that's, that's at issue. 
I'll just add, uh, just emphasize that that uh, the president and Congress have been complicit in promoting the myth of judicial, of judicial supremacy. They love to say things like, the court has ruled, uh, it's a law of the land, we, it's no longer for us to, to um, have to deal with. They love to have these issues removed uh, from their bailiwicks. And in particular, attorney's fees statutes operate to entrench uh, judicial rulings in a way that is going to make it very costly for um, anyone to um, resist um, a, a, a ruling and require that plaintiff after plaintiff uh, pursue it. I actually think um, that it, it would be a good thing, for, although there are lots of reasons this won't happen, for uh, Congress to, to reconsider its uh, sweeping attorney's fee statutes. Hi, excuse me, Carl Golovin and the Fed.info. And my question is, is our, we've been led to uh, fixate on Supreme Court decisions as setting precedents that even extend beyond um, the specific subject matter. And does that lead us away from the central truths of the Constitution? And as a reference for my question, uh, Roger Sherman's a caveat against injustice or an inquiry into the evils of a fluctuating medium of exchange written in 1752, and Andrew Jackson's Farewell Address, 1837. Uh, the essence of this being, you know, we've been led away from the words of the Constitution, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin, a tender and payment of debts. And also, uh, we've been led away from that as protecting the wealth of the people and into a system of central banking that seems nowhere authorized in the Constitution. And, and the emitting of bills of credit was specifically prohibited. To, to whom would that be directed? Uh, to both of you. So have we been led, led away from the truths of the Constitution by fixating on the decisions of the Supreme Court? Roger? Well, I, I think that's true. <laughs> what, I don't have much more to add to that except that, as I said, there's all the difference in the world between the Constitution and modern constitutional law, and nowhere is that more the case than in the post-New Deal ju uh, jurisprudence, which has led us down uh, a path of massive government and has encouraged people to say such things as a, 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 um, a market established by the, an exchange established by the uh, federal government is an exchange established by the state. That was the King v. Burwell decision, thanks to Chief Justice John Roberts. Well, I think you see in so many areas the court can almost in passing um, offer an ill-considered ill ruling on something, and suddenly it's precedent, and this is treated as though there's some sort of huge burden to, to overcome. I'm guessing that Roger and I are, are in agreement that um, you know precedent ought to yield pretty quickly uh, uh, when it's demonstrated that a decision um, is wrong. Uh, again, there are, can be some considerations that, that weigh against that, but I think the, 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 the rhetorical bar uh, is often set way too high on that. Thank you. Preston Knoll. Was Marbury v. Madison properly decided? <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> well, look, I think on the uh, – there, uh, Marbury v. Madison is, of course, one could talk about uh, for a long, long time. But on the basic question of, uh, you know, is there properly uh, a, a power or some would say a duty of judicial review – that uh, federal courts have to determine whether the laws they're being asked to apply are constitutional or not, uh, I would say that uh, Marbury uh, is, is correct on, on that. I think Marbury was correct, too. I read it as saying that uh, we don't 
have the authority to uh, decide this case, but we do have the authority to say that we don't have the authority to decide this case. Now, that said, there are, I'm sorry, there are disputes over whether Marshall actually gave a plausible reading to the particular statute that, that uh, he determined to be uh, in conflict with the Constitution, a whole host of other issues one could raise. But the basic question, power of judicial review, I think that's... As, as an indication of how the judicial appointment process has changed, Justice Scalia was unanimously confirmed after refusing to say whether Marbury versus Madison was correctly decided. David. David Azarad, <clears throat> question for Ed Whalen. I'm very sympathetic to your argument. Would you extend the analysis to the states and say that governors and members of state legislatures who also swear an oath to uphold the Constitution should set aside and correct Supreme Court rulings? Well, when you say should set aside, um, I, I would modify your verb there uh, to should, should not treat as absolutely binding. Again, and we then get into the, to the, the zone of how do you go about dealing with this decision that you in good faith, uh, on a well-considered judgment, determined to be contrary to the Constitution. That's a complicated matter. I don't think there's, I have an easy answer to that. There are questions of, 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 of prudence that come into play. Um, Law professor Michael Paulson uh, wrote a series of um, hypotheticals on the Bench Memo's blog, in which he and I both blog on National Review Online some years ago, and, and ran through these different alternatives, even going down to, you know, may, may juries also disregard um, uh, uh, Supreme Court decisions they deem to be mistaken. And his, his answer in every instance is, yes, they, they, they may disregard. But again, that doesn't get to the, the question, uh, the, the vexing question of how you go about uh, doing so in a way that is um, responsible and effective. Uh, but also, let's remember, before we go down too far on this road of critiquing the idea of judicial supremacy, that the um, refusal to uh, abide by a court ruling is far and away the exception rather than the rule. And uh, it's good that it is because, as I said in my opening remarks, uh, we would have, if that were the rule, uh, chaos uh, and probably undermining of the rule of law. And so um, it is good that this uh, social norm that uh, Josh Blackman and, and Mies have uh, spoken of as characterizing um, this, uh, um, this um, idea of judicial supremacy, at least in a, in a limited form, um, is probably a good thing. Well, I'm less confident that that's the case. I think what Roger, well, what's the case? What Roger refers to as chaos could be the... the healthy tension uh, among the, the separated powers. And I think rule of law may not be the right term to apply to uh, acquiescence to a um, uh, Supreme Court decision that is incompatible with the Constitution. Well, at that point, I become a Hobbesian and want to avoid a world in which life is solitary poor. We've got time just for short. one or two more questions. Young lady, right there. <clears throat> uh, thank, thank you. Uh, Jerrica Washington and uh, Mr. Mr. Roger Pilon, if you would um, thank you for discussing the meerness and the uh, the the word oppression that the founders uh, sought to protect against being merely oppressive, um, and for discussing in depth um, and, and, and venturing into that about how uh, excuse me. 
about how to actually uh, talk about uncertainties um, in the doctrines and in our decisions in, in the judiciary uh, branch. Is there is there a doctrine in place? Is are there now in the modern interpretations of the Constitution? Are there now continuations of that concern that our founding fathers had when they discussed that at some time in the future there would be a consensus that would make our supreme law of the land seem merely oppressive? Make the supreme law of the land what? Merely oppressive. Oppressive. Oh. I'm not sure I understand what the question is. I meant no. I meant no un unreasoning or unraveling by it. Um, when I put the question together, I, I was listening to how you went into depth about uh, the the doctrines in place and whether Plessy was the supreme law of the land, or did we go and change it to to Brown later, and that was the supreme law of the land, and now the people feel that. The supreme law of the land is just whatever keeps the common man in line. Well, I think we all agree today that separate but equal does not yield the result that Plessy gave us. Uh, whether we did at the time is an open question. And the way I generally address this issue is to say that whatever the generation that wrote the Civil War amendments thought and subsequent amendments thought. Fortunately, what they wrote was better than what they did. And so if you read the language with reference to what they did, you are not being a true textualist. You are reading into it a history that may be transient, and indeed, fortunately, was transient. As I said, the Equal Protection Clause is, to be sure, sometimes difficult to apply. But it meant uh, anti-miscegenation laws notwithstanding, that those laws were unconstitutional, as the court in Loving v. Virginia finally said. Now, whether um, interracial marriage was thought to be, const uh, on the, whether, the, whether the power of states to ban um, interracial marriage was thought to be perfectly constitutional at the time of the 14th Amendment, I can't say. But fortunately, the words they left us allowed us eventually to say that laws prohibiting interracial marriage are unconstitutional. Please join me in welcome, in uh, thanking, sorry, uh, Roger Pallon and Ed Whalen.